You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Welcome, my name is Jamie Lemke. I'm a senior fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. And my guest for the conversation you're about to hear is Dr. Audrey Redford. Assistant Professor of Economics in the School of Economics, Management, and Project Management in the College of Business at Western Carolina University. She's a future professor for the lucky students of Hampton Sydney College, so she's going to be moving on. Um, looking at Audrey's CV recently to get ready for this conversation, I was blown away. She's an incredibly decorated both for her research and her teaching just this semester, Audrey won the Board of Governors Creative and Innovative College of Business Teaching Award, the Grace Allen Undergraduate Teaching Award, and the College of Business Graduate Faculty Teaching Award. Oh, I said and too early because it's and the BB&T Faculty Research Award. Um, so she has, as you can imagine, an incredible amount to share and a really wonderful way of sharing it. Um, Audrey studied drug markets and drug prohibitions and the impact that the laws and regulations in that space have on our health and well-being. She's super thoughtful and super careful in the way she thinks about this really important work. Um, and in this conversation, since it's part of this Liberalism for All series, uh, like with all of the future people I'll be talking to, I ask Audrey to define liberalism for us. Uh, Audrey in particular emphasizes commitment to a vision of an open society and what can be possible if we have that deep foundational commitment. Uh, we talk about whether there's space in the drug policy world to discuss a philosophical commitment to openness, um, particularly given this is a space where policymakers and activists are often engaged in that arena, arena and getting involved in the first place because they see openness as problematic. They see people's free decisions as having created harms in their lives and in the lives of the people they care about. Um, so one of the reasons I wanted to talk to Audrey early on in this liberalism for all series is that drug policy is an area where many people who are otherwise committed to liberalism or at least see the merits in a liberal vision find that approach to fall short. So it allows us to begin this critical interrogation of how well liberal values serve us when we move into those difficult spaces. Um, Audrey had some really interesting ideas in the conversation to share about the unintended consequences that emerge when we deviate from liberal approaches, how bad policy might actually wind up making drug use more dangerous and more harmful despite our attempts to help, and also what a more liberal approach to drug policy might look like. We also touch on the possible regressive impacts of prohibitions where most of the harm of some of these drug policies, drug regulations winds up being borne by those people who are already worse off and by those people who are, you know, the aim of the policy is intended to help them, crafted to help them, but it's just making life more difficult. Um, and this topic of regressive impact is something that I'll be visiting again in more detail in our next episode in this series with uh, Professor Deanna Thomas. So 
if you like this conversation, please go ahead and follow the Hayek Program podcast and you'll get a notification once that's available. Um, so without further ado, the thoughtful, fascinating Dr. Audrey Redford. Audrey, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Uh, so the topic for our conversation today is liberalism and the war on drugs. So as we work our way through this conversation, hopefully we'll um, be able to draw out exactly why it is that we want to put these two ideas into conversation with each other. I guess I, I won't put thoughts in your mind. I'll say why why I thought it might be interesting to invite you to put these two ideas into conversation um, with each other. But I wanna start off just to let people get a flavor for you and the kind of work that you do. Uh, what do you consider your specialty to be? Is it fair to say that you would call yourself a political economist? And if you are a political economist, for some people it might be obvious why you would study drug markets for other people, it might be less obvious. So if you want to just give us an overview of how you think about that, you know, what interest does a political economist have in drug markets? Sure. Um, so I, I think it's fair to say that uh, I would consider myself a political economist. Um, most of the time when people ask me what I do, I often will say that I'm a political economist in part to head off the immediate questions about like stock market tips, right? When you throw up the political in there, they're like, oh, that's different. Um, so I am very much interested in kind of this interaction between, you know, the state policy, markets, market activity, and how those things kind of link up and have a dynamic interaction. Um, what's interesting- I, really, I like that strategy a lot, by the way, because oh. I have zero <laughs> yes. stock and it always, freaks me out that people might accidentally take something that I say as advice. So I, I never thought about that as an explicit strategy, but I like it. Yeah. 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 It's because usually either it dovetails into like something really deep, like macro or like Bitcoin or stocks. And I'm like, I am not your girl for that. So let me throw this <laughs> political thing in there where they have to kind of back up for a second. Um, so I think your question about like, how does being a political economist kind of link up with this interest in drug markets? It's interesting, but perhaps maybe not in the way that uh, was intended. So I kind of fell into being interested in economics because of my interest in trying to better understand drug markets and drug prohibition more specifically. Um, so I kind of I guess, yeah, backed into uh, being interested in economics because I thought it could help me better understand uh, why drug prohibition seems to just be this like consistent abysmal failure, at least in the uh, U.S. experience. Um, so interesting. So you were first attracted to like, the history of it or was it the, the opiate crisis seeing the current harms that were, were taking place. What was that trigger that pulled you in? So 
growing up, my mother was a substance use disorder counselor, and now she oversees a substance use treatment program. So drugs have been a topic of conversation in my house for as long as I can remember. Um, and I can't exactly pinpoint whether or not it was her talking about work or me like independently, I think even reading something in Teen Vogue, like some article about ecstasy when I was in middle school or something, um, where I think I asked her about it and I was like, what is this? Um, and basically ever since then, I think about sixth or seventh grade, any school projects where I've been able to talk about or like write about drugs, I've always done it. So I found some way to like talk about it. So in history class, uh, especially after 9-11, I tried to find ways to, to talk about like the history of opium in various parts of the world. Uh, in like government class, I would write about kind of this relationship between how we regulate drugs in science. I wanted to write about like, you know, Nancy Reagan in the 21st century. This is what your brain looks like on drugs. Actually, so much so to the point where in high school, I was asked to come in and teach the day that we do the whole, you know, drug segment in health class, uh, because I knew more about like the science behind it. So I, this is way more than what you asked, but I, uh, in high school, I wanted to be a psychopharmacologist. I wanted to like study the brain on drugs and try to understand like, why do people like using these substances so much? But also I was really interested in, given that um, using certain drugs overstimulates certain neurotransmitters, there were, you know, uh, certain chronic ailments that people suffered, for example, like Parkinson's disease that were an under utilization of certain neurotransmitters. And so I was like, why can't we figure out a way to, you know, use these things that people use recreationally to solve these other problems. Then it turns out I sucked at chemistry. Um, so I had to find something else. And then in college, I took some econ classes and one of my uh, professors, Bob Subrick, a GMU um, alum, actually kind of told me, you know, you could write about this for the rest of your life if you really wanted to. So I kind of fell into econ that way. And then trying to think about, you know, the economic way of thinking applied not only to people who will rationally choose to use substances, even though they know they um, can be potentially dangerous, um, all the way up to policymakers that might pass laws to try to prohibit certain substances, even though they know that it's not going to be very effective, but it really speaks to, you know, them being able to signal to their voter base that like, we're trying um, if they want to get reelected or, or whatever the case may be. So a very long-winded answer to your question, but I no, fell into it's... political economy because of drugs. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I knew I was in the presence of an expert. I didn't realize I was also in the presence of a prodigy. Um, so, but I, the thing that I, I love about that story, one of the things I love about that story is just where following your curiosity can take you. So you had this set of questions that maybe because of your family background, maybe because of, you know, what you were doing in school, you know, winds up kind of tripping that, that curiosity instinct and you just have been able to follow it all the way into this successful career. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it did work out. I was a little curious there when I went to college, like, well, maybe I've just got to abandon this thing. Like, 
because what what am I going to do now? Um, but then then I found something. Um, but yeah, I think it was just always part of it. Uh, I think why I individually had a lot of success with it was. I think for a long period of time, I was perhaps willing to ask a lot of questions that made other people uncomfortable or like that they didn't that weren't appropriate or they were taboo to kind of talk about. Um, but I think because again, of like the circumstances of just having that background and having that, um, these kind of insights from like my mom discussing like the generalities of what she, you know, did for a living. And then also really seeing like how she's somebody who is super well-intentioned and works a lot with, you know, local groups, organizations, but then also has to do a lot of like grant work to try to get funding, it was, I was really having this kind of internal struggle, like, why is it that you have all of these people that are, you know, super smart, that are super compassionate, they care so much. And like, when you look at the, like, overarching statistics about what's going on, it doesn't even seem to be like, permeating in the slightest. And so it was, I was, I had a, I was a pro, I had a problem and I was in search of a tool um, so uh, it, it made me a lot more sympathetic too to kind of thinking about our role as economists that we want to be mindful of not just running around with a tool, like wielding it to any problem, even if it doesn't fit. Um, so I, I guess it was akin to somebody like digging around in a, in a toolbox, like, nope, that won't work. Uh, let's, let's find something else. And then ECOD, and then I think more specifically kind of this culmination of using like market process theory and then insights from public choice. And then also trying to think about uh, what are other ways that organizations evolve to try to fix these problems, like is what really attracted me to a lot of, you know, this, to use Betke's language, like mainline economics, as opposed to, you know, dynamic optimization or whatever else. Well, you've had a lot of success with that strategy, so I definitely do want to get to the specifics of some of your research. But before, just to help us a little bit put this in the context of the broader question about liberalism, I want to ask you what the word liberalism means to you. It's a term that different people define in different ways. So what is liberal to you? What does it mean to to think about a policy being liberal or a worldview being liberal? Yeah, that's actually a really good question because it is it is one of many terms that I found myself kind of frequently stumbling over in trying to make sure that I'm appropriately communicating what I'm trying to say um, to someone else. But I think if I had to boil it down to hopefully a succinct uh, sentence, I think it's a like, it's a, in my mind, it's a, like a commitment to like freedom and a commitment to being open-minded about things. And I say like commitment because I find it's generally really easy to be a liberal when everyone else wants to be a liberal, or it's really easy to like be really open to freedom when everyone's kind of definition of what's the appropriate way to like manifest or live free dovetails perfectly with yours. But when like the rubber hits the road, when like someone else might have a fundamentally different idea about what they should be doing 
you know, in their free life that it's like, you have to take a step back and say, okay, wait, if I, if I truly accept the idea of a liberal society, as long as they're not hurting anyone else, like I have to be okay with that. Right. I may choose to, you know, be free of associating with them, but I have to be committed to the idea that I give them the latitude to make those choices themselves. Um, so I, I really do think of it, and I, that language might be weird, but I think of it as a commitment. Like it's a, it's not just when it's convenient. Um, and I think a lot of times where uh, those of us that tend to think about liberalism in a more uh, classic way tend to have a breakdown with others that might have um, an idea of liberalism in a more contemporary way, or where sometimes we don't as classical liberals don't effectively communicate, like, because a lot of us live lives that look remarkably similar to each other in terms of what we value, um, aside from just freedom. And so I think that being more um, communicative about like this openness, but also like the deeper foundational commitment matters. That makes a lot of sense. And you know, this is a conversation that I think can sometimes be difficult to have. You know, so you're a political economist, but being economist is part of that. And so many of the tools and frameworks of economics are designed to be scientific. They're designed to do positive analysis, but yet we're still navigating the social world. So what we choose to do our positive analysis about is a normative consideration. And that positive analysis also has normative implications. And so when you get to talking about what your research on, on drug policy, what the implications that has for people, this kind of commitment to openness, I can imagine being a difficult conversation to have in the context of drug policy, because a lot of people don't want to be open yeah. in that regard. They don't want to allow that to be a free choice, particular drugs, the use of particular drugs should just be completely off limits as a moral consideration. So, you know, I, is, is that a conversation that's been difficult for you in your research? Do you, do you face pushback along those lines or am I imagining something that doesn't really exist in the, in the drug policy world? Oh no. So yeah, I get a lot of pushback all over the place. It's actually even, uh, just the other weekend in a setting, hanging out with a lot of people that are economists and then also are uh, tend to be of this kind of classical liberal background. I had a, a conversation with a few people where um, even they would define themselves as being, you know, classical liberals, anarchists that were still very opposed to the idea of people um, being allowed to, to use drugs. And so I would, or at least certain types of drugs. Um, and so part of it, I was, you know, taken aback and was like, wait a minute, hold on. Where are we, where are we coming from here? Like, let me make sure that I'm not miscommunicating. And like, you're interpreting me saying that these people should be using certain substances. Cause that's not the same thing. Uh, but, uh, in part of what that conversation brought to my mind and something that I try to um, always bring up when I'm doing particularly public lectures, when I have a whole bunch of people coming from a variety of different backgrounds, um, is trying to open their mind to the possibility that like 
we need to we need to be mindful when we're making policy that could have like lasting ramifications on not only an individual's life, but also like it could have generational impacts that we might be wrong. Um, and so one of the things that I'm most concerned about, particularly in thinking about uh, policy formulation, but then also the way that certain policies kind of lend themselves to, whether intentionally or not, um, coercive tools of the state that, you know, it's one thing if we had, you know, the the ability to perfectly predict the future and it turns out like, oh yeah, that's the right way to do it. Or like, that's going to lead to a lot of great outcomes. But like, we have some pretty rich demonstrated history of being very wrong when it comes to drug policy um, that I always just encourage people like we could be wrong about this too. And so while yes, having this commitment to allowing people you know, to do things that maybe on a personal level, I would, you know, encourage them perhaps not to do or to, you know, be more mindful of potential harms. I am very stubborn when it comes to saying that we need to, to craft policy that would isolate them from those options because we could be wrong and that could end up causing like some pretty systematic harms moving forward if that makes sense. No, absolutely. And even if someone has trouble getting to that idea that they need to be humble about the consequences of using a particular drug, when other people are not little robots within our control that we can just push the levers and, and readjust everything in their life in right. order to make it fit together in a new way. So we're talking about you know, not just the drug itself, but the the policy around it, the different behaviors that go into enforcing it. And when you start to think about all the different touch points, there are a lot of different things that we could be wrong about. There are a lot of different ways we could be wrong or could be generating harm and how we choose to go about trying to interfere in other people's lives. Yeah. And then I think too, also in kind of thinking about like which system is going to be most robust to doing the least harm or like, you know, which system is going to be most robust to like, if we get some aspect of it wrong. Right. So like if we live in a free society and, you know, we don't realize the the harms of a particular drug or like a particular variant of say fentanyl and we then learn about it how do we update right and so like what what how do we kind of move around from there and i think of it a little bit in kind of a parallel though there are of course some important differences um, to be mindful of the main one just being like our ability to uh, gather like scientific information and make, you know, scientific assessments. But a lot of the, the discourse around concerns about fentanyl are not entirely different from concerns that people had over a hundred years ago about patent medicines. So like these medicines that 
you know, the, I, I think actually in the opening sequence of the Wizard of Oz, right? Like the guy that's like riding around when they're in the, you know, black and white sepia version before she goes to the, to the land of Oz is like a snake oil salesman. Like he's selling patent medicines, yeah, yeah. right? And so like they poison people and like they caused a lot of harm. But then the series of events that took place in trying to protect people from patent medicines didn't actually fix it. It just made it just minimized the number of outlets that people had to, you know, utilize substances to try to make themselves feel better. And then also made it extremely costly for them to kind of seek out help. And then that only intensified, you know, a decade or so later when um, we started to introduce federal policies to try to track where um, different uh, substances like at the time legal heroin was being sold. Then there was the Supreme Court case to try to clarify the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act. I think it was Webb versus the United States, I think in 1919, that basically mandated that doctors were no longer allowed to prescribe um, substances, particularly opiates like morphine or heroin for the purposes of maintenance, which just means that if somebody is misusing a substance, they could get prescriptions or get, you know, refills from their doctor so that they didn't go through withdrawal. And then in 1919, that's now illegal, um, that doctors could lose their license. And so it completely changed the incentive structure where it didn't, policymakers, I imagine, were hoping that, oh, well, if people can't get, you know, what they need from doctors, they'll cease to use. But, you know, if we follow through what consequences are likely going to arise, that may have happened. Um, but largely what it did was people stopped going to doctors to maintain and instead started seeking out other individuals who would be willing to actually provide them with substances that were typically of a lesser quality. And so then any conversations that they had with medical professionals, you know, now are these doctors that are, that are top of the line medical professionals in terms of, you know, medical knowledge then as compared to today? No, but were they like at the top of whoever you could seek out at that time? Absolutely. And so now they're kind of cutting themselves off from the very people who would be able to give them the most insights about how to, you know, if they were committed to maintaining what they could also do to try to live a healthier lifestyle. And so that relationship gets severed. And then that only intensifies when the federal government outlaws heroin five years later. And then it just kind of uh, snowballs thereafter. Yeah, I think this is a good time to get into some of the specifics of the research you've done in the past few years, because you're already starting to hint at a little bit this idea that it's a lot easier to, well, let, let me phrase it a different way, that if you block off a path for people, they're not just going to stand there or turn back the other direction. They're going to look for a different way around that roadblock and you don't necessarily know what the new path is that they're going to take. So, um, you know, by way of moving towards that idea, I want to ask you about some of your work about innovation in the drug world. And one of the things that I've always found interesting about your approach is that, you know, you do touch on 
the politics and consequences of the war on drugs, but you also look inside from almost a, an institutional and, or an organizational perspective. And you look at how those policies are going to change what people who are in the business of producing drugs, whether legally or illegally, how that's going to change how they want to operate and then the impact that that might have on people who are are using those substances. Um, so if you're putting a policy in place that is designed to stop people from you know, scratching an itch, whatever kind of itch that is, uh, whether they're trying to, you know, whether they're just seeking a high, whether it's for pain relief, um, whether it's some mental, emotional drama that they're managing, um, you know, you can't policy that away. You can't policy away that itch, that energy, that, that desire to um, pursue that goal is still there. Um, so, you know, I, I just want to kind of open that for you and ask you to maybe share some of the, you know, how you think about that redirection of energy, um, some of the examples that have stood out to you the most, just how do we understand the way that operates within, uh, within the, the world of drug production and use? Yeah. Um, so I kind of think of it like in the early, well, early-ish, uh, PC days, if you ever recall playing the, the old school, like CD-ROM game Lemmings, oh, yeah. were trying to like dig through and then like there would be an obstruction. And so then they would just start like walking back and then piling on top of each other. And then like one of them, perhaps not even intentionally would find some other weird way to get around. And then they would all start following. Like, that's kind of how I think about and I think it's broader even than thinking about uh, illicit drug markets, but I, that's kind of what policy seems to do is that like it's slant or can do, I should say. It slams in a roadblock that kind of has people stumbling around and saying like, okay, well, what do we do now? And then all it really takes is like one you know, entrepreneur, and I think that calling them an entrepreneur, even if it's in an illicit or illegal setting is appropriate given you know, they're trying to find ways to cope with the situation around them. They're using profit and loss signals, price signals to the degree to which, you know, they're useful and not crazy noisy. Um, and then they find a path forward and they're like, all right, well, let's let's pursue this avenue and, and see where it gets us. Um, so in thinking about like innovation in um, drug markets and in particular in kind of this illicit space um, where Primarily, the, the, the goal of, you know, illicit substance users or even, you know, drug users when it's legal and thinking about nicotine or alcohol or whatever the case is, they're, they're looking for a particular outcome that's generally just, you know, to feel better. Now, now why they want to feel better could be from a whole host of, of different things. Um, and I think another piece that is important to remember and that I've tried to be more um, cognizant of, particularly in making sure that, uh, like any good economist, I'm sufficiently nuanced, um, where I have so many caveats, it's hard to get a one little soundbite, uh, but trying to think about not just like alcohol users are not all the same, drug users are not all the same. And the overwhelming majority of people 
who use drugs for the purposes of getting high or feeling better never run into a lot of the horrible outcomes that we see. Um, and so part of my focus on trying to look at the policies that have seem to result in these terrible outcomes is trying to figure out like, well, what's different about those? So like, how did this particular policy change set off this kind of chain of reactions that resulted in such a devastating outcome so that if we see some consistencies, then we can hopefully utilize that to make more informed policy that's less likely to result in those outcomes in the future. Um, and so one of the biggest places where I saw um, just in kind of thinking about the history of drug policy, primarily in the U.S., um, is when there was an overwhelming structural change in federal drug policy in 1970 with the passage of the Controlled Substances Act. Um, and I focused on that one for a couple of reasons. The first one being it was when we started to actually track a lot of information and data associated to, to drug use and then also overdoses and things like that. So it was actually easier after 1970 to just gather information about, you know, what the lay of the land looked like, but then also um, as a way to try to track outcomes. But another big piece of it is that the 1970 regulation or sorry, change in legislation was overwhelmingly motivated with good intentions. And part of so perhaps unintentionally for me, something that I've always been very interested in is trying to understand how such good intentions can often lead to really bad outcomes and trying to think about that good intentions arguably or, well, they're insufficient, but depending upon who you talk to, they might by and large be unnecessary um, so they're neither necessary nor sufficient when it comes to making like good policy that's going to actually result in in positive outcomes, right? Because there have been instances where we have policy where people had not so great intentions that actually turned out okay, but it wasn't because that was what they wanted. It just they didn't think through all the consequences. So in 1970, we implemented in the U.S. the drug scheduling protocol that we still use to this day of categorizing different substances into schedules based off of a few criteria, the main ones being the potential for addiction and then accepted medical standards and safety standards as deemed by the federal government. And so when kind of looking at this overhaul in legislation, I started thinking about, well, how does this change the incentives for producers in these markets, or, you know, if you're an entrepreneur in an illicit drug market and you are obviously weighing the costs and benefits of selling any one particular substance, and then there's this huge change in the way that you're potentially penalized if you're caught, what are likely going to be some of the ways in which you would change your behavior, structurally change your behavior, structurally change your operations in order to cope with the, the new policies. And so one of the big things that I focused a lot on was how if you make a list and you define policy based off of a list of drugs, 
a huge incentive is going to be to find drugs that didn't make it on the list for one reason or another. And how that is going to be kind of the overriding incentive or like the number one goal before you can even start to think about anything else. And so I've talked in a couple of papers about how drug producers, drug traffickers, uh, drug sellers will have to think strategically about what are the substances they're going to be interested in selling and that that might actually create a sizable trade-off when they're thinking about what are the necessary investments of the time and resources and money that they have access to. Uh, where are they going to invest it? Are they going to invest it in you know, ensuring product quality? Maybe. But if the resources necessary to ensure product quality make them less dynamic to adjustments when a substance they were selling a year ago has now been found by law enforcement and the DEA, and now it's on the schedule, and now it's in the most restrictive category, well, they don't want that anymore, so now they have to update again. And so then it kind of, it takes, at least in my mind, what could have been much more of a positive sum outcome for producers and consumers and changes the dynamics that make it much closer to almost zero sum. It's probably not the right language, but at least that's kind of how I think about it. And then to what degree does that also make information asymmetries far more pervasive? So now you have a lot of these substances that are slightly chemically different that are all being sold in the same market that are being referred to typically by similar names or at least similar street names um, and intentionally trying to outpace law enforcement so that if there is a bad outcome and it's this relatively newer substance, how would anyone respond to like administer help if they don't actually know what it is? And then also if the consumer doesn't by and large know what it is. And so I tried to kind of work through in a few different papers and in a few different kind of like blog posts and chapters here and there and trying to think about like, can this potentially give us some insights not only on the history of drug policy over the past now, what, 50 years, but then also can it give us some insights on kind of what's been currently happening with the most recent opioid epidemic that's um, been exacerbated by a fentanyl crisis um, that hasn't gone away, um, unlike the previous fentanyl crisis that we saw in the 1980s that was intense, but it didn't last as long. So this is the project where the idea of malnovation came from. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Can you, can you define malnovation for yeah. us and, and talk a little bit about kind of why we need that term in our lexicon? Yeah. So I was trying to basically think of a way to describe this process, but the challenge I kept running into is that the word innovation, even if it's just in, you know, uh, modern language, it has way too many positive connotations to it. And so I didn't feel comfortable talking about, you know, the creation of incredibly potent drugs um, and drugs that can have, at least, you know, in the past, drugs that we don't really hear about much now that can have like some pretty intense psychoactive effects that I don't think 
most reasonable people would refer to as like normatively good. And so I was trying to come up with a way to talk about how this process is very similar to innovation, but because of the institutional restrictions and that like these new policies are basically binding the hands of these entrepreneurs trying to discover new substances because these new substances, they need to not be the existing substances or they need to be not the substances that are in the most punitive drug schedule categories that by binding their hands, it's channeling what would be an innovative process, but in a direction that could have some really significant you know, downside risks. Um, and so I called it malinnovation because in a lot of cases, not all, but in a lot of cases, the um, new substances that came out of uh, these, that came out of the uh, legislation or the, that were produced as a result of the legislation typically resulted in some, some pretty bad outcomes. Not, not all, so like one caveat that I guess I should say so that I'm not making it sound like any and all drugs by definition had to have been necessarily bad, because that's not true. Um, MDMA, for example, um, while the chemical structure was known several decades in advance of 1970, MDMA, or what we would refer to as ecstasy, or if we want to get chemical, 3,4-methylene-dioxylmethamphetamine. I like to throw that out there because it makes me sound really smart. Uh, yeah, um, you're just showing off. That's okay. This is yeah. to show you off. So, that's um, so that, like, that chemical it turns out actually gave people a better high that they were looking for in situations of, you know, going out clubbing, dancing and things like that than MDA did before. So, um, so I guess if I had to describe malnovation in any way, it's, I would say it's kind of like if you took Kersnerian superfluous discovery, slammed it together with path dependence, and moral hazard problems, you get malnovation. <laughs> yeah, I like that. And that the Kersnerian superfluous discovery idea, uh, he has a paper where he outlines all the different or a variety of different forms that entrepreneurship can be can take in response to regulatory efforts. And so this idea of superfluous discovery is that a regulation can sometimes create an incentive to innovate in a particular direction that would not have existed absent that regulation. So it's possibly a distortion to the market process. And so you're adding on to this idea of distorting the market process, which means that in addition to the negative consequences that you're talking about in terms of people now dealing with drugs that they don't really know the chemical composition of and potentially getting themselves into dangerous situations. We also have this direction of effort in the economy and among people away from uses that might have been more productive and that might have been more beneficial. You know, what would those individuals, you know, what would those individuals have been doing if they hadn't been putting all this effort into the malnovation process. I don't know, is that, 
is that a significant element in how you think about these questions or am I, um, you know, kind of critique me there? What, um, what, what am I missing? No, I, I, th- I think that's right. Um, but I also think too, it, it, I think that it plays out in layers as well. So like if it's interesting to kind of think about how the nature of drug markets and then entrepreneurs operating in illegal drug markets would look different absent the 1970s regulation. But then if we also think about like without the 1970s regulation, dealing in all these substances would still be illegal. It would just be these, it would be drugs kind of writ large would be open to punishment as opposed to this more kind of nuanced approach. But then I think that it begs the question about like, well, what's the the additional layer, right? So like, yeah, we have a lot of illicit drug entrepreneurs operating in these spaces that kind of exacerbate the need for these, you know, more entrenched criminal organizations to actually move substances around um, that constantly have to invest in innovative processes to avoid law enforcement. Um, So what does that end up, how does that change, like what they find to be the most productive or, I mean, to channel Bommel here, like does it transition what would have otherwise been productive entrepreneurship into unproductive? And then that kind of matters that like, well, what's the angle at which you're looking at it? Um, and But then I also think too, like if we remove the layer of like, well, what if these just weren't illegal in the first place? Like it's probably the case that drug cartels, for example, as we think about them today would not exist. Now, would there be criminal organizations that exist to do things? Absolutely. But in the, their current functional form, by and large, they would have been rendered useless because they're by and large superfluous because they only exist to kind of move these substances around in a particular space. But absent these substances being illegal, most people do not want to actively involve themselves with violent organizations. And so I often think about like, how would the entire like pharmaceutical drug industry look different if we said a long time ago, maybe it's okay if we accept the fact that like people are going to try to do things to make themselves feel better or to make themselves feel happier, to experience some level of euphoria or to try to help them manage, as you kind of uh, mentioned before, like psychological or emotional trauma or manage what could be problems related to, to mental illness that they might not even be aware that are, or that are manifesting, right? Like, what if we just said, hey, maybe it would be better if people with a comparative advantage in trying to develop these substances, test these substances and test the effects were the ones actually producing them and not, you know, this alternative infrastructure uh, that exists now, um, almost entirely as a function of trying to bypass U.S. federal drug law. Like the origins of, or at least all of the evidence that I have seen about like the origins of any sort of criminal organization in Mexico and Central America related to illicit substances can be traced back to 
um, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when the US federal government began implementing tariffs on opium um, that were primarily targeted at trying to minimize the amount of opium that was already produced for smoking coming into the US, in part as like a strategic trade agreement with China, but this is also around the time of the Chinese Exclusion Act. And so many representatives are on record saying, well, if we make it harder for Chinese immigrants to access smoking opium, maybe they won't move here. And so it was like strategically used as this tool to try to have one particular outcome. And then it turns out that didn't work so well because you could just import crude opium and then relatively easily turn it into smoking opium. And the tariffs on crude opium are significantly less. And so then they ban the importation of smoking opium outright from China. But it, you could still import it from other parts of the world. So Chinese entrepreneurs started in, or exporting opium to Mexico. Mexico then began importing opium into the U.S. And then when they were like, oh, well, we didn't expect that to happen. And then they, you know, passed new laws to say, well, we can't import opium that originated from China. Then you just have this organization of people in Mexico that basically changed around the, the tariff stamps, like the importation stamps. So they started forging importation stamps and basically started using Mexico as this middle ground space to move drugs into the U.S. And then that starts to create very long term consequences that probably aren't random when it comes to thinking about the prevalence of um, these criminal organizations that move substances from other parts of the world through Mexico into the U.S. Wow, the history of drug policy is just so complex and fascinating, but I think that example is also a good illustration of the fact that even policies that are framed to be very general in their application. So to uh, th they are written in such a way where it sounds like they should apply equally to everybody can actually have the impact of targeting a particular group. Yes. And that can be intentional or unintentional. So one of the things I've been thinking about um, ever since you brought it up is if I understood you correctly, you suggested that the people who are impacted the most by these drug policies are not really like your person who casually uses at a party. It's not really your occasional user, like the stereotype of the person out in the club, something like that. It's instead people who for whatever reason are more prone to find these drugs highly addictive. It's people who are in, um, maybe have mental health problems, maybe are facing other really serious challenges in their life that make the cost of drugs seem less to them than they might otherwise. So do you think that this malnovation effect, the way we design and approach drug policy, does it have a regressive impact in that it disproportionately harms the people who are already worst off in society? And if so, kind of, you know, why is that not a bigger part of the conversation? Yeah, uh, I, I think that that's probably fair 
to say. Um, so I think that, of course, there are always the stories, like you said, about, you know, the Susie went to a party. Susie's never used drugs. You know, Susie's derelict friend, whoever, gave her these substances and then bad things happened. Like, th- that does happen. But I think more right. systematically, we run into basically seeing the problems that arise where, I mean, just like anything, when we try to ban or prohibit or, you know, wishing it doesn't make it so, people with resources, people with large social networks and connections, people with money and wealth have different options on the table, right? So, I mean, one example that comes to mind that maybe isn't a a perfect example, but isn't kind of thinking about like um, certain medical procedures, for example, that are outlawed in the U.S. because they're potentially risky. Okay, well, very wealthy people can fly to other countries where it is legal. So like it doesn't tie their hands. It only ties the hands of those that, you know, making trips halfway around the world is cost prohibitive. Or even thinking about like abortion laws, right? Like if those vary at all, state by state, country by country, then it's not the case that everyone living in the particular place where it's banned is never going to have access to it. It's only going to be the people who can't endure the cost necessary to go somewhere where it is provided are going to be the ones who bear most of the cost of that. Um, so I think that that is a, is a fair thing, uh, is, is a fair um, way to, to think about it. Um, I, I also think a big piece of it too is in thinking about that not only are there a lot of harms associated with the use of these substances, but there's also a lot of harm associated with the way in which we enforce a lot of the laws surrounding these substances. Um, So, you know, the, in thinking about the fact that not all drug laws are equally well enforced. And then even when, uh, we pass new laws to change the manner in which um, they're enforced. They're not, they're not enforced across all communities in the same way, much, uh, much the same way that like a lot of drug po- or sorry, gun policies are not enforced equally across all people. Um, and so I think that that's uh, a big component to it. Um, I also think that stigma is a large uh, part of the, the problem. Um, a stigma associated that anybody who would, um, am I echoing to you? Uh, just a little bit in like the past 10 seconds. I don't know what changed. I wonder if it's like my internet spectrum sucks. Is it better now? You can leave the spectrum sucks thing in there, but they, they need to hear it as often as possible. All right, cool. I think it stopped. I don't know what the hell that was. Um, but what was I saying? Something about enforcement, drugs. Oh, um, in thinking about like drug use behaviors, there's a lot of stigma associated with it. That's really hard to like, to get around. Um, I think as well, when we, if, if there's at least some portion of people who utilize illicit substances to attempt to self-medicate, uh, a lot of that can be a byproduct of them not having access to more legitimate channels of trying to seek out help, or there could be stigmas in their community associated with 
seeking out help related to mental illness or, or whatever the case may be. Um, and another piece of it as well that I think is um, interesting to think about, and I have to admit, I hadn't thought as much about it as maybe I should have until reading um, Carl Hart. He's a, I guess he's technically a neuroscientist um, at Columbia University. Um, I've read his stuff for a long time. He had a, I had actually read several of his academic papers um, early on. And then he came out with a book while I was in college, I believe called High Price. Um, but more recently he's written a book that I believe is called uh, Drug Use for Grownups, um, where he really talks about that one of the biggest problems that he sees associated with drug policy is that we kind of lump all drug users together and don't talk about that the overwhelming majority of people who use substances never run into problems and that there are way more people who use substances that just don't talk about it because it's not appropriate or like it's has too much um, of a stigma associated with it. And so I wonder how hopefully kind of moving forward, if we have more nuanced discussions about the fact that if addiction um, like an inability to maintain a sober lifestyle, if that's kind of what someone realizes is the best choice for them, um, is kind of the root of the problem that that might require a very different approach, not only in personal interactions, but in policy to individuals who can use a substance recreationally every now and then where it would it never has any sort of negative consequences in their personal or professional lives. Um, and so I think that approaching drug policy more liberally would help kind of flesh out those nuances and that they would open us up for not having this like one size fits all approach that is going to, I think, disproportionately impact those that are oftentimes using substances in a way that results in misuse due to other um, factors in their life, it's not really going to change much for the typically wealthier, typically better connected individuals that recreationally use substances. And so if we kind of open up the way in which we handle this, the way in which we approach policy, that it might shed a lot more light on, well, what are some of these structural differences here so that when it comes to trying to get people with legitimate addiction problems that have legitimate substance use disorder problems, the targeted help that they need that's more specific to the realities that they face. I'm really intrigued by this idea that part of the pull of some illicit or dangerous drugs might be a lack of access to healthier or, or more direct routes to dealing with whatever mental or physical or emotional, um, I'll go back to the metaphor of the itch, itch that that person is trying to, to scratch. So if we're thinking about access to psychological care, access maybe to drugs that can be safely prescribed by a doctor rather than found on the, on the street, mm -hmm. 
this connects to another really interesting project you've recently done uh, with Angela Dills on drug and alcohol regulation during the pandemic. And for all of the you know, terrible things that so many of us have had to deal with over the past uh, couple of years, ever since COVID-19 became a, you know, a serious danger, one, there, there was one positive set of regulatory outcomes, which is that in response to that, different regulatory agencies lifted restrictions they previously had in place on access to healthcare. And in particular, one of the really major um, outlets is the ability for people to get um, telehealth, video uh, conferencing, doctor's visits, these kinds of ways that you can at least imagine might make it easier for someone who can't afford to take time off during the day or doesn't live nearby a doctor or, or a particular specialist, you can imagine it might make them easier to make it easier for them to be able to access care that they might have even wanted previously, totally unrelated to COVID-19, but they just couldn't access. And now they have this access. So they have, they have this ability to get the care they need because of the regulations that have been lifted. Um, do, do you think that there is some cause for optimism there? Is this something that, am I, am I being Pollyanna or did this make it easier for low-income individuals to be able to access healthcare? And, and if so, is it something that's going to stick around? Is this something that has the potential to be a long-term improvement yeah. Um, so from everything that I saw in our paper um, specifically, and I will say that Angela is the uh, is definitely the, the the telehealth expert amongst the uh, the two of us. And I know that actually that paper that you're referencing was part of a uh, political economy of COVID-19 um, special edition in um, or symposium rather in the journal in the Southern Economic Journal. And I believe Angela, along with a co-author, has another paper in another symposium, I believe in the SEJ, where um, they focus almost exclusively on changes to telehealth overall and kind of looking at like, well, what types of problems were people able to more readily try to fix because they now had access um, to telehealth. And so they, they you know, used a couple of different like estimation strategies to try to track that and pretty consistently found that um, at, at worst, not much changed. And at best, people had access to um, a lot of um, alternatives that enabled them to access like more preventative care to try to catch problems earlier than they, they may have otherwise. Um, yeah. So I think that um, telehealth access is a big one, um, particularly because um, one of the changes that was made during the pandemic and will be interesting to see if this sticks is um, it changed the emergency protocols associated with um, CMS or like centers for Medicaid, Medicare, like 
that telehealth visits were not previously reimbursed at the same in the same way that in-person visits were. And so after in-person visits became difficult, if not impossible, um, in the early days of the pandemic, they allowed for telehealth. And so if that sticks, it's going to potentially have a large effect in kind of these more vulnerable populations, right? So the aging population, but also very low income individuals. And I think another piece of it too, that another colleague of mine is working on, uh, Ed Lopez, in thinking about like broadband access, that one of the shortcomings in places where we didn't see a lot of movement in changes related to, to telehealth were in really rural areas that don't have access to reliable internet. Um, and so like they couldn't have meaningful visits because their internet connections were dreadful or they don't have um, reliable cell phone service. Um, and so kind of thinking about uh, perhaps, you know, my mind immediately goes to, well, one of the big challenges related to access there is that, you know, the cost of setting up the infrastructure necessary in very remote areas is a challenge, but one, how many of these remote areas are there a bunch of different regulations that tie up how many service providers there can be in a given area? And so trying to think about like, all right, we've identified a problem and a way that we can see some like longevity and improvement. So how can we meaningfully get access to these services to people that need it? That's going to be most robust to potential challenges kind of down the road. Um, I also know that um, a lot of the rules surrounding um access even to like alcohol, for example, uh, during the, the pandemic um, changed. Um, so basically in every state other than Pennsylvania, um, access to alcohol got a little bit easier um, in terms of, you know, delivery. People were now able to, to consume alcohol at home. Um, they could take items to go back to their houses. And I know that there are several working papers um, that's one weird thing about economists, like whenever there are gas shortages or weird pandemics, we're like, yes, a structural shift in the data so we can gather all of it and, and talk about how changes, you know, result in different outcomes. Economics is real. Um, or at least that's how I feel when I talk to my students. I like get really excited. And I'm like, see, shortage. Ah, how do we fix this? And they're like, it's a gas shortage. Why are you so excited? And I'm like, Personally, I'm really angry, but in the classroom, this is exciting. This is that I'm not totally full of it, right? Yeah. We can add it to the long list of reasons that everybody loves an economist. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We're great. <laughs> We're great at a dinner party. Um, yeah. But yeah, so like alcohol got easier to access. And I know that in several states now, including Virginia, um, as a result of kind of these changes that made alcohol easier to access. There's been a lot of conversations about, well, are these changes that we wanna keep around permanently um, or all of the regulatory oversight that existed prior to the pandemic, was that actually necessary because we didn't run into like a doomsday scenario, at least as it relates to, to a lot of the negative outcomes associated with alcohol consumption. However, one thing that I will say that is a huge 
problem um, is the overdose death rate, particularly among 18 to 45 year olds from unintentional drug overdoses is higher than it has ever been in recorded history in the US by orders of magnitude. Um, and so that's, I think, a, a big question of like, why did that happen? So like at the same time, to your point about like, we had access to telehealth, we had access to people being able to remain in contact with doctors and like try to um, remain up to date, get you know their needed prescriptions filled. And at the same time, use of illicit illegal substances increased significantly. And so a big question is, well, why did that happen? Um, and so I will be interested to kind of see um, just as kind of people throw out different hypotheses. One of the things that I will be curious to, to try to investigate, and then the challenge, of course, will be how does one go about investigating this, is that I'm wondering if, given that we know that there is a high overlap in people who misuse illicit substances in trying to um, cope with emotional distress and other mental health disorders. I, it, a global pandemic where people are put in a situation where either they and their kind of assessment of, you know, relative safety choose to self-isolate, but I think potentially more problematically when you have people coerced into isolating themselves from others that are now not as connected with their social networks. Um, I'm curious to kind of see to what degree, if any, um, some of the policies associated with keeping people physically apart may have, of course, very unintentionally exacerbated a lot of these problems. Well, um, it's consistent with your observation that the greatest harms associated with drug addiction and drug misuse are often among those who are using drugs because they feel as if they are out of other alternatives. Yeah. So the pandemic was also a time when many people were cut off from all of their other alternatives, whether that was socializing, whether they lost work. I think you mentioned in that paper that there's always an, an increase in drug-related deaths whenever unemployment goes up. Um, so I think this just very fortuitously, fortuitously connects us back to our big theme for this podcast, which is that in an open society where those alternatives are available, mm -hmm. what the calculus might look like for those individuals could be very different. So in a world where we have that commitment to openness, where we're thinking about policy, regulation, institutions through the lens of are they going to open up opportunity for people to make their own choices? Or are those policies, regulations, and institutions going to close off those opportunities? Yeah. So I just want to, by, by way of you know, wrapping up this conversation, which has been so, you've given me so much to think about, but by way of wrapping it up, I want to ask you what might, so, so I kind of just broadly gave an argument that we should have a more liberal approach to drug policy. 
Um, but what would that actually look like? What, what is a more liberal approach to drug policy? Are there some low hanging fruit that we should be looking at or looking for? Um, that's a really good question. Um, and it's usually, well, especially when I give like public talks on this, one of the hardest questions to answer because I think when you do the comparative statics, it's easy, but we don't live in a world of comparative statics, right? We can't just jump from one alternative to the other. Um, there's a dynamic process there. And I think that in any sort of policy change, we need to be mindful of kind of, again, intended unintended consequences, but any kind of potential collateral damage that could arise in, in movement um, from one to the other. So while I think it would be very easy for me to say something like, and, and I do firmly believe this, that in a, in a world in which all drugs were legal to consume, like if people could buy methamphetamine at Walmart tomorrow, they could buy heroin off the shelf at CVS next week. Like, I think that we would live in a fundamentally safer environment if our goal is to try to minimize the number of deaths and overdoses. But in order to get there, that would require a huge amount of change in almost every conceivable way that we think about not only just regulating drugs, but regulating anything related to um, medicine, medical procedures broadly. Um, it would force us to very much so rethink what is the role of something like the DEA or the Drug Enforcement Administration? What does the FDA do? Um, so I think in terms of low-hanging fruit, I don't know because one of the, and maybe this isn't necessarily fair of me to say, but one of the things that has always uh, frustrated me a little bit is that so, and I, I realize that part of it is because it's politically palatable, but all of the focus on legalizing marijuana and then decriminalizing possession of a lot of substances, I see as being important insofar as its traction, its movement, I think in the general right direction. Um, and I also think that it will change the way in which a lot of these laws are enforced, which will have, I think, long-term uh, positive effects, but it doesn't get at like the root of the problem. Right. Like most of the problems that we've talked about and that I have focused a lot on my research is that, I mean, if we want to put it in like supply and demand space, the supply curve is the problem. And all of these policy and more specifically, the supply curve of these substances that are arguably the most dangerous and have the highest potential for addiction, not your marijuanas of the world or your, you know, um, some of your psychedelics that the, we need to think about how to substantively change the nature of supply. And right now we don't do that because, well, probably for a variety of reasons, but I think the biggest one is that getting people to can just take a few minutes to even wrap their mind around what a world would look like where we legalize drugs is overwhelming to them. And that it is very challenging for people to think through the implications of what if it's the case that we're saying that it should be legalized, but that's a very different statement than saying 
people should use them and trying to be more um, kind of nuanced in that discussion. But even then there might even be people who say like, I, I'm not, I'm being too uh, small C conservative. And they would actually say, no, we should be encouraging people to use a lot more of these substances because they might actually be better ways of dealing with um, problems in their, in their lives or like coping with various issues, right? Like I would wager that alcohol consumption in the U.S. relative to what's ideal is way too high um, in part because people can't access other substances that would better allow them to achieve their um, explicit or perhaps even more implicit goals of socializing or feeling better. Um, I do think actually a big area where we could see some long-term improvement not only in getting people, just the general public to think differently about substances, but also in kind of poking a little bit at um, the need for and the structure of FDA protocols is in the seemingly huge and quick traction that MDMA and psychedelics have had in thinking about treating PTSD and other traumatic experience disorders, um, particularly among like the veteran population. Like the amount of traction that they've experienced in terms of getting um, human trials and getting um, public sentiment, I think in part because they have kind of this smaller group um, that, you know, concentrated benefits, all that fun stuff that we always talk about, but also a group of people that I think anybody across, you know, whatever political aisle would say that by and large, the federal government hasn't always treated very well, that this could be a huge area to substantively improve their lives. But if we see that that works well, that that could have, you know, a broader, uh, that could have broader implications for the general public. So if there was kind of a, a lower hanging fruit or in thinking about um, a more targeted area where there could be a lot of traction that could have large change, I think it's in, in that space and thinking about how um, movements towards um, legalizing for, even if it's just medical use initially, MDMA, ketamine, and various other things for um, psychological treatments. Um, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> well, I think your work has opened just such a fascinating set of challenges to the way that we think about drug policy and to the way we think about approaching these questions in a world where we have this commitment to openness. And I just, you know, I, for one, I'm looking forward to seeing what you do next. Um, so thank you so much for your work and thank you for being here today. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.